You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called the portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Hello everyone and welcome back to Always Picking Electric Securities. Today is November 17th, 2021 and it's your host Alex Marku. And on today's episode, I'm going to be reviewing Super League Gaming's third quarter's earnings report. I'm going to talk a little bit about Ryan Cohen's tweet on Sunday night. And then I'm going to give you some new information that I just recently found out about Ethereum. It might be old news, but to me it's new. Then for the sports segment, I'm actually going to be laying out some bets this time. And I'll finally be wrapping it up with talking about what the derivatives market is. Financial Disclaimer Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Welcome back, apes and all retail investors that think alike. On today's investing segment, I'm going to be recapping Super League Gaming's third quarter's earnings call. I'll go over Ryan Cohen's tweet that came out after I finished my recording. And then I'm going to break down some news I just discovered on Ethereum. It's probably something that's been developing for a while, but this is news to me. Now before I dive into the earnings call, let me give a quick update on the Apes portfolio. From here on out, I'll be referring to this portfolio as the Apes portfolio, because it's the acronym for always picking electric securities. Last time, this portfolio was valued at about $1,070. Now, the portfolio is valued at $1,062. And this is primarily due to the small dip in the crypto market over the last two days. Since I didn't place any bets and I haven't bought any new stocks, the small $8 difference is due to just a crypto fall. But I'm not worried because I didn't sell a thing yet. And then another portfolio update is that the options contracts were not bought. I'll still be placing them for this upcoming week. And in case you forgot what options I was talking about, I'm talking about the Super League Gaming $7.50 call that expires April 14th, and I'll be putting the buy limit at 50 cents per contract. And then I'm also talking about the Cortezyme stock, where I'll be putting a call for December 17th and for January 19th. The $35 call on the 17th of December, and a $45 call for January 19th. I'm putting a buy limit for 10 cents per contract for both of them. Alright, now that my recap is over, let me dive straight into Super League Gaming's third quarter's earnings report. So I'll quickly give out the highlights of the report, and then I'll dive into each topic individually. Starting off with their revenue, Super League Gaming was able to raise their revenue to $3.6 million, which from the prior third quarter last year, they had $718,000. They increased their net operating loss by about $2.7 million, but this also came by doubling the engineering and advertising expenses, respectively. 17% of the sales revenue was accounted for by the content sales, 
as opposed to 53% from last year. Super League Gaming's management claimed that they're able to reach 70 million active monthly players and a third of Roblox's users based off of the metrics they have. And the one area of concern I have for the company right now as it stands is their cash flows. Because it looks like a lot of the cash flows gains they're getting is coming from strictly just financing operations. Which isn't a bad problem in the short run. But if this trend continues, in the long run it might not be a good thing. So after listing out the highlights, what do I think stands out for this company? Well for me what stands out immediately, aside from the revenue jump and the amount of expenses they put into their advertising and engineering, is the fact that only 17% of the revenue was attributed to content sales. Because last year, that number was 53%. Which means last year, Super League Gaming relied on content sales in order to get half of their business's revenue. But this year, it was only 17%. And while doubling down on the research and development expenses along with advertising, their net loss only increased by 2.7 million. Which seems like a large number, but so is getting revenue from 700,000 to 3.6 million. This shows me that Super League Gaming's company is now adapting. Instead of relying how their main business model started, which was content creators, they are now expanding through the advertising market and trying to grab reach of new users. This is clearly shown considering that they have partnerships with Roblox. The fact that they have access to just a third of the Roblox users is big enough. And then for the management team to come out and to tell us that over the last quarter, they had about 70 million active monthly players on their platform, that's even bigger to me, because it shows that this company is growing. But just like any growing company, they've got their growth spurts. And to me, what could hinder the company's future is if they keep up their cash flow statement activities. Right now, it's not a problem that almost all of the cash flows are coming from financing, but if this were to continue, over a long period of time, eventually in the long run this company would have to go bankrupt or they would be so diluted from offering shares that they would be a penny stock. And I mean pennies of a penny stock. Because for the third quarter, Super League Gaming was able to earn about $33.5 million worth of cash from financing activities, which for them was issuing common stock. Now this isn't a bad thing, but there's only so many times a young company can do that and the proceeds they got from issuing their common stock was cut in half by the cash flows from their operating expenses. So what I'll be looking for in the future and what I'll be more curious about is to see how Super League Gaming's management handles their expenses. Just like I said in my last episode's teaching moment, you can only truly measure your costs. So yes, it's nice to see that their revenue spiked up crazy, but that's not a guarantee. And what has been consistent so far is the amount that they are spending. Outside of this quarter because they doubled down on the research and development expenses, it looks like they've been pretty consistent with the expenses. So I'm curious to see what kinds of expenses they can try and start shaving down while they try and scale up and acquire more of a customer base for their platform. Overall, I think it's still too early to tell if this is a good or bad play, but this is where I think it's the best time to make a decision. Because if it does go down, Yes, you'll lose money, but in the grander scheme of things, and in the long run, if this is where you make your stock picking decisions, in that gray zone where you're not certain if it's going to go up or down, the consolidation periods, that's where I think you have the most potential to make money. And now before I move away from talking about Super League Gaming, I want to talk about one last thing, 
the market cap. Now for anyone who's unsure what the market cap is, it's one of the easiest calculations. You just take all the shares outstanding that a company has and multiply it by the current price. This gives you a valuation of what the market thinks that that company is worth at any given moment. With the stock market, since prices fluctuate, so do market caps. This is why you hear news sometimes of some companies overtaking another company in terms of market cap. It's also why you hear certain stories headline that this company is worth five times more than all of these companies put together and stuff like that. All of those claims and all of that BS media is quite literally just looking at market caps at any given moment. So what's the market cap for Super League Gaming? Well, it's $138 million. And honestly, I didn't know that until yesterday when I put this in my Excel spreadsheet. I think this is such a tiny market cap, I'm actually very surprised. And I'm gonna tell you right now why I think the market cap is small. Before I compare this market cap to another one, I wanna let you know that I view Super League Gaming as a streaming service. Not only a streaming service, but a streaming service for video games. So the amount of potential I see this having in the future is unlimited because no one really knows how big the esports world might become. And there seems to be a really big market notion right now that video games are a new untapped market. Why else would Facebook change their name to Meta? Aside from getting away from all their scandalous reasons, they see that video games have a future. So now that you're aware that I view Super League Gaming as a streaming industry, let's compare apples to apples and let's view what the market cap for Super League Gaming is to one of the low-end streaming providers, which in my opinion is FuboTV. Now I'm not saying FuboTV isn't a successful streaming service, but I'm comparing it to the likes of Roku TV and Netflix, which have market caps easily up to 10 times its size. And now what's the market cap for FuboTV you ask? We'll round it up, just because I don't want to give you all the little numbers after. It's $3.5 billion. So you're telling me just the normal streaming service company that's playing along with all the big players is valued at $3.5 billion. Meanwhile, I think you have a re-emerging market in the video gaming industry, and the world is waking up. And if Super League Gaming can just become the Roku of streaming services, meaning they can play along the Giants, they don't have to be number one. They could raise that $138 million market cap to anything with a billion, and you'll make 10 times your money. The market cap of Roku is 25 times larger than that of SLGG. Now, if we wanted to put that to stock price, that would mean that if the market caps eventually equalize sometimes in the future, without Roku obviously just falling off a cliff, that would mean that Super League Gaming's price would be somewhere around the $70 to $80 range. Now that option for $7.50 ain't looking too small. But this is only if you're comparing it to the streaming service sector. And I'm not sure if Wall Street's quite there yet. Because Wall Street has a lot of influence on stocks, you have to wait for them to wake up. So I'm going to be getting in early on this play. And full disclosure, in my personal investing accounts, I'm also big on this play. I have options contracts and at least over 100 shares scattered throughout my brokerage accounts. And in the future, I plan on continuing to add to my position. For this portfolio, I'm obviously limited with the amount of money I have. So I'm still trying to add this as a play in the portfolio, which is why I'm going the route of options. And I might even start considering buying some actual shares. But I won't be adding any shares yet of Super League Gaming 
until I at least look at some other stocks for this portfolio and weigh in some other factors. Now that I've talked about Super League Gaming for as long as I wanted to, I want to talk about one thing that happened on Sunday after I finished my recording. On November 14th, at around 10.08pm, Ryan Cohen, my beautiful chairman for the stock I dearly love, tweeted out a cryptic tweet. Now when you first read it, it looks like ew ew lambs ah eva I. And you might think, what the hell does this even mean? And when I first read this, I'm not gonna lie, I thought of that one O of A song by Mac Miller, because I thought he was trying to put ew ew eva I or something like that. But if you actually read it backwards, <laughs> it's a lot funnier. He actually cryptically wrote backwards, I have a small wee wee. So why is this important? Why is Ryan Cohen's tweet of I have a small wee wee, which is written backwards, important to me? Well, because he's been sending out cryptic tweets ever since he's acquired significant stake in GameStop. From the moment he got GameStop and tweeted buckle up and then had it deleted, to all of the other cryptic tweets he's had, of a cone, of a piece of poo, and then a picture of a chair with his face attached to it. He's had plenty of cryptic tweets this year. And I'm not going to dive into all of them or try and tinfoil hat it and break it all down. But what I will tell you is whenever he tweets, the first thing I do is hop on Reddit. And I go on r slash superstonk because in my opinion, if you wanted to keep up with GameStop, and if you even wanted to catch up with what all the drama is around it, I would visit this forum. Because they lay out a lot of great DD here. Now it's not my job to relay all the information off of their forum here, and I will not do that. I will just gladly redirect you to Superstonk, and I highly recommend that next time you have a lunch break, or you're just scrolling on your phone, to go on their forum, and then update their top results for yearly, and enjoy the rabbit hole I just sent you down. But please, when you're done going down that rabbit hole, pick your head back up, and if you feel depressed about the financial markets how I did, remember, there are millions of apes and retail investors out there who felt that gut-wrenching feeling January and February, and we've been in it for the long haul, and we're going to continue to hold hands and fight for market transparency and make sure that if someone's out there trying to be a bully to the market, that they get served correctly. And I think there were a lot of bullies to GameStop before Ryan Cohen joined. Now he's making sure to raise GameStop's self-esteem so he can fight back these bullies. And to wrap up my final thoughts on Ryan Cohen's tweet from Sunday, because a tweet isn't going to have as much attention as an earnings call, I'm going to let you know one of the genius responses I read to one of the apes trying to figure out what Ryan Cohen's cryptic tweet meant. Because it is a cryptic tweet, it can have hundreds of meanings. For example, when I finally read the tweet backwards, I thought, wow, he's calling out the shorts. Because by saying I have a small wee wee, one of the first things I think of is short. And GameStop was, and continues to be, regardless of what the short interest says out there, a very heavily shorted stock. So this beautiful ape on Super Stonk, which I won't give any credit to because if I'm being honest, I don't even remember their username or where I found the comment under. They claimed that the reason Ryan Cohen wrote I have a small wee wee backwards is because he was referencing a scene in Ready Player One. Do you remember Wade in that movie winning the first key 
by completing James Halliday's impossible to win race? Well, this ape literally broke apart that scene in Ryan Cohen's tweet as a cryptic message. He was saying that Ryan Cohen was telling us shareholders the only way to beat the race is to go backwards. So what does this mean? So let me quickly remind you of the scene if you don't remember in Ready Player One or if you just haven't seen the movie. In order to get one of the first of three keys to unlock the easter egg in Ready Player One, you had to win this one impossible race that James Halliday created. And you realize later on in the movie that it was impossible to win by racing the correct way. The only way you could win is if you drove backwards, which was an unprecedented move and it was something not thought of. And it's because this race was rigged to lose no matter how good you were. Well, this ape was comparing that the rigged race is compared to the rigged stock market. Because there's a lot of untransparent data out there and a lot of things that retail investors don't even have access to. So the books and cards are truly stacked against you. And if you don't believe it, well, then explain what happened in January. So by Wade Wilson driving backwards at the beginning of the race, he was able to win the first key and solve one of the first puzzles. He beat James Halliday's impossible race. So what this ape on Superstonk is saying is that in order to beat the stock market, you gotta go back to the beginnings. And there's a huge message being spread around on how GameStop shareholders can do this. And going back to the beginning means going back to the days that shares actually had physical certificates. You see, somewhere along the line, a lot of technological advances gave certain companies the ability to think that they can just split these shares and start synthetically creating more. And I don't have enough proof or validation to this claim, so I'll just leave it that it's a claim I made on my own. But honestly, ask yourself this, do you think it's such a far-fetched idea that Wall Street wouldn't find another way to screw over retail, especially because commission is no longer a thing? Just some food for thought. But what is this going backwards in the stock market really mean? Well, like I said, going back to the days we actually had share certificates. But that would be kind of cumbersome, and we're not trying to go back to medieval times. Well, there's actually something in place for the markets like that. It's just not well known by retail. It's called direct registering your shares. Now, what does it mean to directly register your shares? It literally means putting the physical stock certificate under your name. You see, GameStop is affiliated with ComputerShare, which is a transfer agency. And if you own GameStop or almost any other stock in the stock market, for that matter of fact, under your broker, the stock isn't actually under your name. It's underneath your broker's name or it might be underneath your broker's address. And who's to know that this isn't just an IOU share? Or who's to know that this isn't just monopoly money? Because you don't know. Do you really know the answer to that? Does Fidelity truly show you that the name is on your share? Or does it just show that you have X amount of shares in your account? And when you hit sell, you get the cash proceeds from that. Because if we're just flinging around cash money and not giving people the actual quantity asset that they have, then how do we really know what price discoveration is? This has a chance to be a systemic risk. But big banks and government don't want you to think that. Well, I think it's time the people start making a choice. Do you want the stocks to be registered in your name 
Or do you just want cash proceeds from having X amount and selling X amount? The choice is up to you, ladies and gentlemen. But if I were you, I would call my broker right now and try and find out how I can directly register my shares. If you're going to hold on to these shares for a long time, I'd want them to be under my name. I don't want the broker to hold on to them, because in legalese, they technically have the rights to just sell off your shares. Now, most often or not, they're never going to do this. But what about that black swan event? Do you want to be caught with your pants down because your broker pulled your pants down in a black swan event? I don't think so. So I think I'm going to directly register my shares and make sure that all the stocks I have are owned under my name and my social security number and not under some broker address. But those are just my two cents and the ape that commented on Reddit. Also, a quick little side note before I move on to the Ethereum topic. I didn't mean to throw Fidelity under the bus like that. In my opinion, when I said Fidelity, I was thinking of every single broker. So now let's move on to my Ethereum topic. While I was doing some research on derivatives because it's the teaching moment I have today, I ran across something that Ethereum's platform is actually working on. In a YouTube video I watched to get a quick refresher on the derivatives market, this guy actually gave out some really good information about how the Ethereum platform is trying to bring the derivatives market to the retail investors. Now hang tight if you're not sure what the derivatives market is, because in the next two episodes I'll try my best to describe the whole market as one. At the end of this episode, I'll just be describing the basic overalls of the derivatives market. Kind of like I did in my first episode here with the stock market, I'll give you a history about it. And then in the next episode, I'll give you exactly what derivatives are and how these are traded. But one thing to note from history is that for the most part, retail has been left off of this market. As a matter of fact, only the 1% normally trade on this market. It's called an over-the-counter market for a reason. And I'm not talking about pharmacy definition of over-the-counter. So how's Ethereum's platform going to help with this? Well, I'm pretty sure these projects have been going on for a while, because for me, I'm still new to this crypto market, so almost anything that I read is probably going to be news. And I mean brand new news. So if you're a crypto expert listening to this, sorry if it seems like I've been living under a rock. But to the rest of you out there, the one thing I found out, there's a lot of altcoins. And some of these altcoins have projects. And a lot of projects right now that are working off of Ethereum's platform are trying to find a way to stake their coin or token to these derivatives market. And what these altcoins are trying to do is stake to the fixed asset of the derivative and then make it tradable on Ethereum's platform. Now if a lot of this is confusing, don't worry I'm just as confused as by what I said too. A lot of this I just read in an article, and I briefly understand it. From my understanding, it seems like these projects are making altcoins, and one of the examples I'll give you, which is the one the YouTube guy gave me, is Staffi, which is another crypto coin, because there's like a thousand now. Well, this Staffi coin, or Stafi, however you might want to pronounce it, is a project that's been working on staking these fixed assets, and it's using Ethereum's Layer 2 platform. So as you can see, by other altcoins doing all these hardworking projects, 
it's actually benefiting Ethereum as well. Yeah, sure, if the project for that specific altcoin goes well, the coin is going to go up. But if you think about it, what's the platform it's running on? And I think in my honest opinion, that's why a lot of people love Bitcoin. Because I think a lot of stuff winds up running through it. Now, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm 50-50 on that claim. So if a lot of these coins projects trying to bring the derivatives market out to the retail investors is going to be eventually traded on Ethereum's platform, I think that has huge potential for this. And later on, when I give you more information about this derivatives market, I hope your eyes are going to widen as much as mine have. Maybe. I don't know if we'll think the same things, and maybe what I'm thinking is a wrong fallacy anyways. But regardless, I think it's a really cool idea that these crypto coins are trying to bring more transparency and access to the markets, and I find it funny that the media talks bad about them. I wonder why. So that's going to wrap up today's investing segment of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to Super League Gaming's third quarter earnings and why I think it's a super bullish pick. My methods for staying in touch with GameStop shareholders and of course following the new Elon Musk, Ryan Cohen. And then I hope I was able to at least provide you some more information on how Ethereum can be used as a platform. I'm still learning about cryptos. So I look forward to engaging on this podcast with any learning tidbits, especially because a lot of the learning is going to be done by both of us. So until next time, ape out. Hello my degenerates and anyone that just likes to take a listen to my sports gambling segment. On today's sports segment, I'm going to be giving out two round robin bets and one NFL 10 pick teaser. Now I'll be explaining the teaser for anyone that doesn't know, but if you're listening to this part of the section, I think you know every little code word I'm using. Now normally I would start off with the recap of my last picks. But, if you remember, I didn't make any last picks because I just didn't like the slates for the game. And looking back on it, I'm super glad. I think I remember giving you my personal bets that I had, which was Denmark to win, Italy to cover the spread, the Rams to cover the spread, and I also liked the under in that game. I also had Belgium and France to win. Out of all the bets I just listed to you, the only things that won was the under in the Monday night football game and France beating Finland. So, I would have been negative and I would have lost some money. I didn't like any of the picks and I went with my gut, so I'm very glad I did. But if you listened to this part of this section and you wanted some bets, I do apologize to you. But I'll be making it up to you this time because I looked at Wednesday and Thursday's slates and I found a couple of games I like for both days. So on Wednesday, I'll be sticking strictly to just basketball. I'll be mixing a little bit of college hoops with some NBA action, but that's not a problem because in this round robin betting, as you've now learned, I can mix and match whatever picks I want. It's just basketball is something I'm comfortable with betting. For now. When the account grows, I'll eventually start betting every single sport so that if you like hockey and baseball and gymnastics or whatever random sport you can bet on, you can guarantee I'll have some action in on it. But until I raise this account, I'm only going to be betting on the stuff I know.
So without any more hesitation, let's get into my Wednesday's round robin. For today, as soon as the lines are available for every single game, I'm going to be making the pick. Since I'm not sure exactly what the lines are, I'm just going to be making every pick against the spread. In the NBA today, I like the Bucks at home against the Lakers, and I don't care what the spread is set at, I think they can win by 100, and that's an exaggeration. I also like the New York Knicks at home against the Magic. The Brooklyn Nets against the Cleveland Cavs at home also looks enticing to me. And to finish off the NBA part, which is only half of this round robin, I like the Miami Heat to cover against the Pelicans at home. All of the teams I picked against the spread are at home, and I think they all are facing weaker opponents and that they can cover against them respectively. Now moving on to college hoops, I have picked again what I think is going to be all favorites. I like Baylor to beat Central Arkansas. I like actual Arkansas to beat Northern Iowa. I like Texas at home to beat Northern Colorado. And then I like UCLA to finish off the nightcap by beating North Florida. Together, all four picks from the NBA and four picks from College Hoops should bring a round robin of eight total selections. Once again, I'll run through it and this time just the teams I'm picking. In the NBA, I like the Bucks, the Knicks, the Nets, and the Heat to cover their spreads. And for college basketball, I like Baylor, Arkansas, Texas, and UCLA to cover their spreads. I'll be combining the four teams together in one round robin, and I'll put a $1 bet wager on it, which will give me a $28 risk considering it makes 28 parlays. On the next episode, I'll recap it, and I'll let you know just how much we won. Then after I find out if I was successful, tomorrow there's another day of sports. I mean every day there's going to be a day of sports. Trust me, there's always a sport out there you can find to gamble on. Now tomorrow, we all know that there's going to be Thursday night football, and I wanted to combine college hoops along with NBA as well for this round robin. The thing is, this round robin is actually going to be slightly less than the 8 picks. I found a way to make it 7 picks, but I don't want to add an extra game in there just to make it 8, because there's only 6 games I really even like, but I found a way that I can split Thursday night football into 2 bets at the same time. So let's jump straight into tomorrow's round robin. In the NBA, these are all going to be against the spread. I like the Miami Heat, again, to cover against the Wizards, and this is primarily because they're working on back-to-back -back home games. I also like the Golden State Warriors to cover the spread even though they're visiting the Cavs. And then I like the Utah Jazz to cover their spread against the Toronto Raptors. Moving on to college hoops, there aren't going to be too many games tomorrow, but I did find out that Florida will be playing Milwaukee, and I really like Florida in this matchup. I also like Kansas at home to beat Stony Brook, regardless of what their spread is. I think they've had enough rest and they're going to come out strong. Now let's move on to Thursday night football. Originally, I had the Patriots against the spread, but if I do this, it would only give me 6 picks for my round robin. I'm also slightly leaning on the under for this game. Now when you make a round robin, you can't have two same parlays for the same game if you're going to be picking a spread and an over-under. What that means is, I can't pick the Patriots to win by 7 or whatever their spread is, and to pick the over or under, because it won't let me parlay those options. So a way around this, I'm going to be choosing the Patriots money line, 
and I'm also going to be adding the under to my slate. So instead of choosing the Patriots to cover, I'm going to be choosing the Patriots to win because if they would have covered, they would have won. And I'm also leaning on the under for this game. So now to recap tomorrow's round robin, I have the Heat, the Warriors, and the Jazz in the NBA to cover their spreads. For college hoops, I have Florida and Kansas to cover their spreads. And then when we get to Thursday night football, I have the Patriots to outright win, which is their money line. And then I have whatever the over-under is set at, I'm going to be picking the under for that game. This will give my round robin 7 total selections. And it's going to be giving me 21 parlays. So when I put $1 bet on this, it's going to be risking 21 total dollars on this bet. And those will be the two round robins that I hope will boost this portfolio upwards a little bit so that when I give this next podcast update, you will know that I had a successful betting day. But I don't want to stop the betting for tomorrow with just one round robin. As a matter of fact, yesterday in my personal account, I put an NFL teaser play for the NFL slates. And after I checked the odds on it, I felt like adding it to this portfolio. So I'll let you know exactly what I'll be doing for the NFL teasers play. It also is going to be counting the Thursday night football game. So if you hear this after Thursday and you're not able to catch it, don't worry. Just take off the Thursday night game and include the rest of the games if you want. So a real quick lesson on what a teaser is, if no one's sure. It's a way to parlay picks for spreads or overs and unders and buy extra points for it. I'll briefly give you an example on the New England Patriots game tomorrow. Right now I'm looking at the spread and the Patriots are favored to win by 7. Now if I wanted to make a teaser, you need to at least parlay it with one additional game. So if I parlayed the New England Patriots who are favored by 7, and then I parlayed the San Francisco 49ers who are favored by 6.5, and and I put this in a teaser, you can typically buy teasers as 6 point, 6.5 point, or seven point teasers. What this means is it adds points to whatever that spread is. So if I were to parlay the New England Patriots at minus seven and the San Francisco 49ers at minus six and a half, and the teaser I'm buying is a six point teaser, what it does is it makes the New England Patriots spread minus one, and now it makes the San Francisco 49ers spread minus 0.5. The reason is, because it adds 6 to whatever the spread is. Now if I had chosen the plus money, it would have added it instead of, you know, subtracting the negative. So now let me get into the 10 pick NFL teaser I have for this upcoming week. So because this is the NFL, the lines are actually already up for most of the games. Actually almost all of the games. The only difference is by the time Sunday hits, the lines may have changed. But as of right now, which is November 16th as of 8pm, These are what the lines are. And as soon as I'm done reading this off to you, I'm going to place a $5 bet on this teaser and I'll let you know what the odds are and what the potential payout is if all 10 of these hit. That is the key. All 10 of these have to hit. So, without wasting any more time, let me get into it. By buying a 6-point teaser, I'm going to be making the Patriots a minus 1 favorite, a Bills minus 1.5, I'll be taking the Washington football team at plus 9.5, the Baltimore Ravens just need to straight up win, the Eagles are at plus 4.5, I have the Titans at minus 4, I have the Packers at plus 4, I have Cincinnati Bengals at plus 6, 
I have the Chiefs on Sunday Night Football at plus 3.5. And and then to finish off the slate, we're going to be hoping the Giants can cover a 16.5 spread against the Buccaneers on Monday Night Football. By making this 10-pick NFL teaser, the odds I get on it are plus 2,500. And I'm only willing to risk $5 worth of this account on a bet so outrageous. But if we're lucky enough that this hits, we can turn this $5 wager into 130 total dollars, which will be a net profit of 125. So I'm just going to place this bet right now, and then come Monday, we can hope that we're going to be Giants fans for the day. So to recap this teaser really quickly, I have the Patriots, Bills, Ravens, Eagles, Titans, Packers, Bengals, Chiefs, Washington football team, and the Giants to cover as six-point teasers, all put together, and I'm risking $5 on this so that hopefully we can win 125 This is just one of those outlandish bets I'm placing that I'm not expecting to win, but honestly, after I placed this on my personal account, I was looking at every game trying to figure out who's going to lose, so I'm really curious to see who's going to break this parlay. Or is it going to be every single pick? Well everyone, that's going to be concluding today's sports gambling segment. And if you're going to be placing these bets along with me, best of luck to you. And if you're going to be placing these bets against me, good luck to you as well. I honestly don't care how you make money on this podcast. If you find a trend that I can't make certain picks, definitely go against it. Maybe don't let me know because then I'll start thinking about it. But either way... Until next time, ape out. Hello class, today's lesson plan, what is the derivatives market? Before we can understand what the derivatives market is, First, we need to dumb down the idea of a derivative and understand that, which is a pretty simple term to explain, but it's a lot more complex to figure out. So let me start off with the Investopedia definition, which I'm sorry to give you a slight paragraph read, and this might sound very boring, but I'm going to give you the complex definition first and then break it apart. So according to Investopedia, a derivative is a type of financial contract whose value is dependent on an underlying asset, group of assets, or a benchmark. A derivative is set between two or more parties that can trade on an exchange or over-the-counter. Remember over-the-counter I was talking about earlier? This is what I was referring to. These contracts can be used to trade any number of assets and carry their own risks. Price for derivatives derive from fluctuations in the underlying asset. These financial securities are commonly used to access certain markets and may be traded to hedge against risk. So what does this all mean? It means that two people can come together, create a contract to formulate an underlying asset within the realm of anything that's in their imagination. Simpler terms? This means someone like you and I can come together and let's say we want to choose gas price as an underlying asset. I can make a bet with you that the gas price is going to be going up at a certain strike price and you can make a bet that the gas price is going to go down. 
Now we all know who's going to be losing that bet. You. Now this is a very simple and broad example because normally there's a lot of factors that can play into the pricing of these derivatives. But before we get into how we even got to pricing derivatives in the first place, because there is a true way and there are formulas involved, let's go back all the way to the 1840s where I'll be talking about what all the hype was back then. Wheat production. Now, I haven't done my due diligence to actually look at the price movements of what wheat was like between 1840 and 1870, and I do not care to. But what I will tell you is that grain price actually influenced one of the first uses of derivatives in the U.S. markets. Now, derivatives have been a thing for a long time, even dating back to the Dutch East India Company, because they also had one of the first shorts to ever be recorded which in a way was a derivative, just at the time wasn't thought of that way. But back to our current 1840s U.S. economy. It was actually in 1848 when the Chicago Board of Trade, which was primarily made of grain traders, created a to-arrive contract. And this allowed farmers to lock in a grain price for a future date, and they would pay that price no matter what the market price was. This created one of the very first uses of derivatives in the U.S. markets. And at the time, you could see why maybe this would make sense. Now, I'm going to speculate here and just be dumb, but let's say that back then grain prices fluctuated between $0.25 cents and $0.75. Cents. So if you're the farmer, you want the price of grain to be $0.75 cents because you make more buck for your crop. But if you're the person that buys the grain, you don't want the price of grain to be 75 cents because then you can't flip your product or it just costs more. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, if the price of grain fell to 25 cents, the farmer's crops are now deemed worthless, whereas the person buying the grain is getting the same exact grain, just at a lower cost. So now if they're a business, they're going to be more successful because expenses are lower. And if you're a customer, you're just going to be happier because you have more money in your pocket to buy more grain at the time. So how does a derivative help this? Well, if the price fluctuation is between 25 and 75 cents, this to-arrive contract, which was formulated back then, essentially locked in the price of grain for a future date. So you could pick a price point of, let's say, 50 cents. You meet somewhere in the middle. So now in the future date, if you were a farmer and you made this contract with an exchange, you can sell your wheat through this exchange at that price. So let's give the worst case scenario. And the price of wheat is 25 cents. But you were a smart farmer and six months ago you made this contractual trade to sell your wheat for 50 cents. Everyone's going to be buying wheat at 25 cents. But when you as a smart farmer sell it to this exchange, you sell it for 50 cents. And you can be a loser on this end of the spectrum as well. Let's say that you made this contractual agreement to sell your wheat for 50 cents, and the price of wheat actually went up to 75 cents. Unfortunately, you're gonna be a loser on this end of the deal, and now you can kinda of get an idea of how this is used to hedge your risk, especially in an unpredictable wheat market. And as these contracts were traded and mistakes were made, more and more lessons were learned. And as more and more lessons were learned, I'm sure they updated contracts and eventually they probably also found different ways to hedge against other risks and other assets. And this eventually became a growing market. 
up until about 1929. Because something happened in 1929. There was a huge stock market crash. Now I can't tell you 100% what happened and what caused this crash, but at some point in the future, I'll have a stock market crash episode. For now, we'll just let you know that after this crash, derivatives were actually banned for a period of time. You see, during this market crash, a lot of people had a bad image and a bad mindset on what a derivative is and how it was used. And they had every right, because during this time period, a lot of derivatives were used on speculation. As you can see, derivatives were meant as a way for hedging. But you can also use them to make pure profit on speculating. So imagine if as a regular person, you found out that people on Wall Street could profit if the economy was tanking by buying puts. You'd get furious, especially if you're out of a job. And I'm pretty sure this is what happened. I'm not saying this is what led to the crash, because once again I'll claim that I don't know yet, and I haven't really looked too much into it, but I do know that from the 1929 stock market crash, it led into a Great Depression. And I'm not saying that derivatives caused it, but I wouldn't be surprised if the derivative market had some small aid in at least prolonging the aftershock of it. And it was because of the bad public image and the realization that there was little regulation at the time in this area that probably led to a market crash larger than it really should have been. It's almost like if the correction should have been 10%, but the derivatives market made it 50%. And I'm just throwing out those numbers for reference sake. I don't actually know if that truly happened. So after 1929, the use of derivatives was no longer accepted by exchanges. There most likely were underdealings, because let's face it, the black market's real. But it wasn't until 1973 that derivatives were starting to resurface again. And why was this? Because voila, we found a formula. Wow, we can now predict how to price derivatives. Isn't this fantastic? So let's reintroduce them to society they were such a good thing in the first place. No, but in all reality, derivatives do serve as a useful purpose. As I said, for the hedging purpose in a volatile market, it's very helpful. But the problem that lies with these derivatives comes from the speculation end. Because if you think about it, it turns the market into a game of monopoly. But enough on my two cents, let's get back to the actual history lesson. In 1973, it was Fisher Black and Myron Scholes who created a formula model so you could actually price derivatives, more precisely so you could price options. You see, the problem that arised in the 1929 stock market crash, and this I do know for a fact, is they didn't have a true method on how to price these derivatives. They quite honestly would just guess, day in and day out. They had an expected return. But what they didn't account for was market volatility. So on a day that the stock market probably fell 5 or 10%, these derivative contracts probably fell 50% for holders. And when people see their money fall that much, everyone starts to panic and sell. And if everyone went to the market at the same time and requested all their money at once, it creates a liquidity problem. And without doing any research, I'm willing to make the bold claim that that's how the 1929 stock market crashed, because of this liquidity crisis. But with the introduction of the Black and Scholes model, 
institutions started gathering more faith, especially because at the time period, it was an actual proven model on how to hedge perfectly for all of your risks. So more and more exchanges started adopting this model and started pricing options this way. What this led to was an industry-wide acceptance for this model. Now the problem that arised came 15 years later. It was during the 1887 crash. Now I seem to be talking a lot about all these crashes, especially for an episode that I said won't be about stock market crashes. But let me tell you, correlation is not causation, okay? Because in the history of the stock market, there's crashes, there's bull runs, and then there's consolidation periods. But I'm just listing out these crashes because it actually pertains to the development of these derivative markets. So what was the cause of this crash? Well, I'm not one to say exactly what caused it because there's a lot of variables and a lot of factors. But let's just say that during this year, there was a flaw found in the Black-Scholes model. And it was that it couldn't measure one parameter. And that was the average future volatility of the actual underlying asset. Holy shit, you don't say you can't measure the volatility of the actual asset you're picking to derive off of. Who would have thought? Nonetheless, as rough as the crash may have been for anyone involved in it, which I'm sorry if you're listening to this and you actually lived through the crash and it seems like I don't even know what the hell happened or seem so soulless about it, but this minor hiccup in the stock market's history actually strengthened the model for these derivative contracts. You see, because exchanges found out that they weren't able to measure the average volatility of the underlying asset they picked, they did some really wonky thing, and I'll try and explain it, but I actually don't truly understand it. What they did is they found out that they could use the volatility off of other options prices and do an inverse of that, and use that as the parameter for the future price of the underlying asset. Now I'm not sure how that works, because I don't have enough wrinkles in my brain, but someday maybe I can dumb it down to you. Right now I feel dumb for just saying that. So what's happened with derivatives since then? Well, they've only progressed. In terms of the industry as a whole, I mean. Ethically, I don't really know. And I'm not here to say, because I haven't done enough research yet. But I'm willing to tell you this already. From a speculative point, it can be a real gamble. And if it's a real gamble, and we're making a stock market an underlying asset on these gambles, then I don't know how this could not pose a systemic risk. But on the other hand, I do see how if you use derivatives to truly hedge against a volatile market, both parties on the ends of the contracts can actually be winners and not losers. But it's the speculation and the speculative part of trading these derivatives that really gets my gears grinding. Now this is only part one of the derivatives market because I wanted to save most of the juice for Friday. I wanted to give you guys a nice introduction and show you just the tip. As a little tease, I'll give you an idea of what I'll talk about for the next episode, aside from just obviously the derivatives market. I'll be talking about what kinds of derivatives there are, and more importantly, we'll go more in depth with actual numbers. For example, I'll talk about what forwards, futures, options, and swaps are and I'll try and break it down to the most basic level. And then get ready to have your mind blown. Because there are going to be some numbers 
that you can't possibly comprehend come this Friday. Well, class, if you've made it this far into the episode, I just want to say, love ya. Until next time, ape out.